Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory I know this life meant for me Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving value's contagious This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it Now they run, homie, look what I become I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick Bedevi, your host of Aytem. And just a few months ago, I did a video on uh, the history of U.S.-Iran explained. And it was 30 minutes and it got millions on top of millions of views. And now, with the recent conflicts U.S. has been having with Iran, everybody asked me, Pat, can you talk about what's going on today with Soleimani, with the whole possibility of a war? Should we be worried about how is U.S. going to respond? How is Iran going to retaliate? Are they going to retaliate? I go into depth in this episode regarding what's going on with U.S. and Iran today. So let's first go through the timeline. The thing I want you to keep in mind is that I'm not going to cover everything, although I'm going to leave the links for you to go out there and do your research, but I'm going to give you the main things that took place leading up to the killing of Soleimani and where we're at today with Iran and uh, U.S. April 8, 2019, Trump announced the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, as a terrorist organization. You'll know why this is important later on. So next, June 20th, U.S. drone shot down by Iranian forces. U.S. claimed they were flying on international airspace. Iran claims it was Iran's airspace, so they shot it down. The next day on June 21st, Trump tweets he stopped last-minute drone strike as retaliation. Iran sees this the following day on June 22nd. Iran said they would respond firmly to U.S. if U.S. did anything. On July 1st, Iran exceeds limited amount of enriched uranium, which is what the most people are concerned about around the world. What if Iran has nuclear warheads? Following, on September 10th, Bolton gets fired over Iran because Trump was a little bit too concerned. A lot of people that know John Bolton. John Bolton really wants to go to war. Some even call him a warmonger, so Trump fired him. Next, on September 14th, this was a big event. Aramco, that by the way just went public in September, it's a trillion and a half uh, uh, dollar company. Aramco oil attacks on facility. U.S. says it was Iran. Iran says it wasn't us. Houthis, which is a Yemen rebel group, took responsibility, but pretty much everybody around the world knows this was Iran. Next, on September 24th, Trump asks countries around the world to tighten economic tension uh, towards Iran at U.N. General Assembly. All nations have a duty to act. No responsible government should subsidize Iran's bloodlust. This is very interesting because at this time, a month after that, I was at Monaco. I went to Khan and I spoke to a very strong political figure out of Lebanon. And he says when this took place, they had to tighten all the banks, all the businesses with Iran. This really hurt Iran's economy, but they were not feeling it yet. So let's fast forward to November 15. Watch what happens. Protesters in Iran. You remember this if you watch the news. They were furious because Iran, all of a sudden, with no warning, raised gas prices by two to 300%. This led to 631 people being killed. That was told by the opposition, but Amnesty International said it was around 300. Iran denied it regardless that the event took place. Next, on December 11th, sanctions on Iran now included shipping and airline industry, which is obviously getting tighter and tighter and tighter with making money. On December 27, two days after Christmas, a U.S. contractor was killed in Iraq by Hezbollah, which is an Iranian-backed militia, and obviously this infuriated a lot of people on Trump's administration. A couple days later, U.S. targets militia sites as a retaliation for the attacks of the contractor that they killed. On New Year's Eve, December 31st, a pro-Iranian paramilitary broke into a heavily fortified American embassy in Baghdad. Now, obviously, this is like, wait a minute. Are you wanting to push the envelope? You're pushing yourself right now where the U.S. may retaliate. 
Then comes New Year's Day. Then comes January 2nd. U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Epser warns Iran may be planning attacks. So everybody's like, wait a minute. What do you mean Iran is planning attacks? This is January 2nd. And this leads us to the big event, which is on January 3rd. Okay. U.S. kills Ghassan Soleimani at Baghdad airport at 1.20 a.m. This is very important for you to know what 1.20 a.m. means. Iran comes out and says there's going to be a harsh retaliation, okay? Harsh retaliation for what was done. On January 4, Trump tweets and threatens Iran that if they do anything, we will hit 52 cultural sites of Iran, which, by the way, he couldn't do. Uh, a couple days later, he took that back and said we couldn't do it because they came back. and said, You can't do that with UN law when it comes down to war. You cannot have cultural sites. But he did make that threat on January 4. Afterward, January 5th, Iraqi parliament calls for expulsion of foreign troops, meaning, hey, U.S., leave Iraq. For many, many years, we've been good allies. We've been okay with Iraq. Now you're telling us to leave. So Trump says, if you want us to leave, we're going to put the worst sanctions, worse than Iran, on Iraq. And Iraq kind of came back and said, okay, okay, just stay. But listen, stop kind of making our life a little bit tougher than what it is right now because Iran trying to attack us. January 6th, Rouhani tweets, those who refer to 52 should also remember the number 290. Never threaten the Iranian nation. In the tweet, he explains the 290 was the amount of civilians killed on an airline that was shot down under the Reagan administration back in the 80s. So he's reminding, are you talking about 52? We're going to talk about 290. That's Rouhani. January 7th, 56 people were killed in the stampede. Uh, during the ceremony, during the funeral of Soleimani, which they had to delay the funeral and actually change some of the times because of the 56 people that were killed. Now, Iran comes out, this is very important for you to catch this, Iran comes out and says on January 7th, look, we're willing to work with you, we're willing to go peace and make this thing work, and U.S. is like, oh, okay, Iran's willing to work with us. So after Rouhani says that, watch what they do. Remember the 1.20 a.m.? At 1.20 a.m. on January 8th, Iran shoots 12 missiles and hits Iraqi bases that houses U.S. military forces. That's what they do. Then, a few hours later, Khamenei comes out and talks to Iranians and says the following. Last night, we slapped them in the face. This is a way of saying we responded to what U.S. did to us. This is the timeline we have so far on what's taking place with U.S. and Iran. So now let's talk about who Ghassan Soleimani is. Is he as big as everybody makes him out to be? Who is this man? Ghassan Soleimani was born in religious city of Rome. He was raised in Kerman, which Kerman is a very well known for politics that they teach and what Iran stands for and traditions. And by the way, the funeral was held in Kerman later on. Reports indicate he joined the IRGC, hence, remember IRGC? What I told you earlier on April 8, Trump announced the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. He joined the IRGC as a youth, as a youth, at the beginning of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, and played many roles until he took over leadership of the Quds Force in 1997. This is very important. This was announced. Eight and a half months later, he gets killed. Nine months later, he gets killed, right? So now let's continue. IRGC specializes in unconventional warfare, okay? And military operations that supports non-state actors. These are rebels, militia rebels that in many countries, such as Lebanese Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, in the Gaza Strip or West Bank, Yemeni, Houthis, 
Shia militias in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. These are the rebels they support, and he is the voice behind all of these guys, supporting them with strategies of what to do next, and he is brilliant when it comes down to being strategic. He was listed as a terrorist by the U.S. They categorized him as, at that. When he passed away, it was said that 82% of Iranians supported him. Now, part of this could be propaganda because a lot of times, you know, like there's a lot of Trump uh, supporters that will never say they're Trump supporters until the day comes to go vote, but they will never talk about it, never say anything. And then, boom, 58 million people show up to go out there and vote from whatever the number is. Where did you show up out of nowhere? You never talked about Trump because they're afraid because they know if you support Trump, maybe the media is going to say stuff to them and at your job, you may lose something. There were also some people that opposed them, but never wanted to say anything. These are the people that voted to say we support him 82%. He's a military genius, took lead in Iraq of Shia militia group. He's seen uh, as the potential next leader of Iran. Not just a general military strategist, the commander of special forces. He's not just that. He is seen as that. I want to remind you, I did an interview with Sammy Dabul Gravano. He said something, one thing. He says, Patrick, never worry about the person that pulls the trigger. Always worry about the person that's orchestrating in the back, behind the scenes, and pulling the strings of what to do next. That is Soleimani. That's who he is, okay? So now we have an idea of who was killed. He has killed a lot of Americans. He's killed a lot of Iranians. And he is hated and feared by a lot of people. And then there's a community that loves him. And here's why. A lot of times we can talk about it all from everybody's perspective on how glad they are that he's dead. The other perspective is the following. You don't mind having a guy like this on your side, if that makes any sense. Make sense? So you know how everybody has that one friend that everybody fears? You don't mind having that guy with you because everyone fears him. You just don't want to be his enemy. And if he's your enemy, you got to get rid of him because he wasn't a supporter of U.S. And so U.S. had to make that decision. They took the shots. It is what it is. That decision has been made. Many people are happy this took place. Some are not happy this took place. Now let's continue. Let's talk about the three reasons why there's always war and havoc in the Middle East. Number one, it's religion. What do you mean by religion? Here's some basic things you got to know about religion. 93% of the population in the Middle East, they're Muslims. 93% are Muslims, right? In the Middle East. Christians, 3.7%. Jews, 1.6%. Mostly in Israel. Unaffiliated, 1%. And Hindus, around 1%. Now watch this. Breakdown of Muslim. This is interesting to know what the breakdown of Muslim is. Muslim has two different denominations, if you want to put it, right? There's the Sunnis and there's the Shias. Now the Sunnis, of the 93% of Muslims in the Middle East, 85% are Sunnis. 15% are Shias. In the world population, there's 1.6 billion Muslims worldwide. Of the worldwide population, 1.4 billion is Sunnis, 200 million is Shias. Just for you to know this. Now, how did the Sunnis and Shias controversy start? When Prophet Muhammad died in 632, he had four followers. One of them was Abu Bakr, which was a good friend of his. Then it was Umar, Uthman, and then it was Ali, which was a son-in-law. When that took place, he hadn't created a succession plan. A lot of people said he would have chosen Abu Bakr as his successor because that was his best friend and he was, it was his number one follower. But a lot of people said, no, it's got to be somebody part of his family. It's got to be Ali. So at this moment, there was a division. They voted and they voted for uh, Abu Bakr to be the leader and the successor of Prophet Muhammad and the Muslim religion. They became Sunnis and those who said Shia Ali, they became Shias. That was a division right there. 
To keep that part of mind, you have to know that Iran is mostly Shia. 90% of Iranian population, the religious, uh, the, uh, the Muslims are Shias, 10% Sunnis. And Saudi Arabia is Sunni. So keep that in mind. You have Iran is Shia, Iraq is in the middle, and in Saudi is Sunni. Okay, so that's that part that you're looking at. Now, as we're looking at these things, this was religion. Point number two is oil. Why oil? Obviously, everyone knows what's going on with oil. There's two numbers I want you to be thinking about with oil. One of them is supply. How many billions of barrels the top five biggest suppliers of oil are? Number one is Venezuela. We've done a video on Venezuela. That's a complete different story. 300 billion barrels. Number two is Saudi Arabia, 267. Number three is Canada, 173. Number four is Iran, 158. And number five is Iraq, 150. Three out of the five top suppliers of oil all live neighboring each other. Think about how big the world is. Three out of five are right next to each other. Do you think there's a little bit of controversy and conflict going on there with competitiveness? Now, top producers of oil. Number one is US. It's roughly 15 million barrels a day. And this is a lot of the fracking that we're doing in uh, the Dakotas. It's not necessarily that we're bringing it in or we're selling it. We're pretty much using everything that we need with the oil because we need it. It's not like we're selling it to anybody. It's like some of these other nations, they make the money off oil. We don't, we take it ourselves. Saudi Arabia is second, 12 million barrels a day. Then it's Russia, 10.8 million barrels a day. Then it's Iraq, 4.4. Then it's Iran, 3.9. Then it's China, 3.9. The reason why I put China here is for a point I'll make to you later on. How this whole thing could hurt China, you'll see why in a minute. So you got religion, you got oil, and the last one is nuclear warheads. Let's talk about nuclear warheads. Watch this. Leaders in nuclear warheads around the world. Number one is Russia, 6,500. Number two is U.S., 6,185. These are the two powerhouses. By the way, 90% of all nuclear warheads are owned by two countries, you, uh, Russia and U.S. That's what 90% of all around the world, and there's only nine nations that have nuclear warheads. Out of all the uh, countries that we have, only nine have nuclear warheads. Russia's for then U.S. and France, 300. China's 290, UK 215, Pakistan 150, India 140, Israel 90, North Korea 30. What nations do we talk about? I didn't say Germany, I didn't say Japan, not Iran, not Saudi Arabia, not South Korea, not United Arab Emirates, not Italy. You mean to tell me Germany has big of an empire that they had? They didn't, yes, because they signed a treaty that they wouldn't because people were afraid, obviously, with what happened with Germany. Japan had to do some of the similar things after what happened with US. Iran is not trusted to own nuclear warheads because people are afraid. What if they do something? They could cause havoc here because the world is relying on the supply of oil here. The world wants this place to be safe not just the Middle East. Now let's continue. So, so far we've talked about the three reasons. Religion, oil, and nuclear warheads. Let's talk about these countries here, this region. Watch this. They did a survey the other day saying, American voters, can you show on an unlabeled map where Iran is? And only 28% of voters could say, here's where Iran is. Most people don't know the map. Not because you wake up in the morning, go study geography. You just have better things to do in life than want to study this map, which I understand. But we'll go through it here a little bit. You got Iran here, okay? The neighbor is Iraq to the left. Then you have Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel is all the way on this side, okay? So Saudi Arabia, there's a small country called Kuwait. And then down here, you got Dubai, Oman, Yemen, okay? 
So why is this so important? Here's why it's important. Iraq essentially plays the wall between Iran and Saudi Arabia. This gives peace to Saudi Arabia because it is a cushion between them. The stronger Iraq is, the better Saudi does. The weaker Iraq is, the more Iran can use their militia from here to come to Saudi. And we'll get into that here in a minute. So to do that, I got an illustration here for you to give you an idea of who gets along with who in this region of the Middle East, okay? I have a, a Hezbollah on a lot of different things, but I'm just going to talk about three of the countries here, which is what? Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq. Let's take a look at that. So if you look at Iran, Iran gets along with Iraq, doesn't get along with Israel, and doesn't get along with Saudi Arabia. That should tell you the whole thing pretty much. And if you look at Saudi, they don't get along with Iran or Iraq, especially today on what's going on because Iran and Iraq have kind of joined forces a little bit today, right, on what's taking place. So what does all of this mean? Let me bring you over here on the three countries, Iran, Saudi, and Iraq, okay? Iran's population is 81 million people, okay? Their size, land-wise, it's 636,000 square miles. That's Iran. Saudi is only 33 million population, but they're 830,000 square miles, okay? And then Iraq is only 38 million but it only has 168,000 square miles. Now watch this. If you combine the population of Iraq and Saudi Arabia together, it's still smaller than Iran. And if you combine the size of land between Iran and Iraq, it's still smaller than Saudi Arabia. So the, the reason between this conflict between Iran and Saudi is because years ago, Saudi Arabia was just part of the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottoman Empire took over Iraq and then there was some conflicts, these guys had a little bit of momentum. They won their land and they won this land over and they named it Saudi Arabia in 1932, okay? So 1932 is the only timeline that Saudi Arabia has been around. That's only an 88-year-old country. It hasn't been around for as long as Iran's been around. So up until this point, Iran was a superpower, oil, all of these things that they had. They were still having a lot of conflict because Britain, Britain and Russia took over twice and they were kind of going back with their oil, but nobody was looking at Saudi Arabia. Six years later, they strike oil and they realize they have more oil than anybody else around the world at the time until they realized Venezuela's number one. But at the time it was Saudi Arabia has more oil than North America, Central and South America combined. Everybody looked at Saudi Arabia as the superpower. Now, Iran's not happy about it because Saudi's getting detention, so now there's competition. There's the reason why Iraq's playing a big role, right? So watch what happens next. Now there's a dispute. Iran says Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia calls it Arabian Gulf. Matter of fact, there was a time when Michael Wallace is interviewing the Shah, and he says the following. As you know, I have been across the Gulf, the Gulf that you call Persian and they call Arabian. Why do you call, call it Gulf? You have been to school, haven't you? Yes. What, what was the name that you have read during your school days? Persian Gulf. All right. That's <laughs> but they do call it Arabian Gulf. Well, they can do many things. So now, obviously, you can tell that, you, you, hey, what are you doing calling it Arabian? You went to school, right? What did they call you when you went to school? And Mike Wallace can't even answer. It's the Persian Gulf. I don't care what they want to call it. They can call it whatever they want. There's already a little bit of competitiveness going there, right? So now, this takes place. How do they fight wars? Because Iran and Saudi Arabia have never had a direct fight before, but there's two different ways to have war. One is a cold war, which is pretty much everything except killing somebody. Anything except we're going to war, meaning threats, propaganda, rumors, anything you do, internal division, cold war, that can go on for a long time. It happened obviously between US and Russia for a very, very long time. But a form of war that they can go is a cold war. The other one is a proxy war. What a proxy war is, 
when you use another nation to instigate them going against you. So for instance, when Iraq is going against Iran, when Saddam Hussein was running the nation, Saudi Arabia is helping Iraq to go against Iran because that's a proxy war. And when some of the militia is going against Saudi, they, Iran, support the militia to go against whoever it is that they're going up against, right? They support with militia, that's what you call a proxy war. So they've been going back and forth for a while, and this is all leading to the following. The current situation, Iran lost their number one general. Iran lost Ghassan Soleimani. Iran lost the person that was supposed to be the future leader of Iran. Iran's regime, Khamenei, Ruolah, these guys are excited that this man is a strategist brain. He's going to one day run Iran with our philosophies, with our belief system, with the things we believe in. The Shia, Khomeini was a Shia. He's going to go follow this. Oh, we are building this guy as the future. They lose him. Think about if you lose your number one guy, okay? What happens? Ways Iran can retaliate. Here's how Iran can retaliate. A lot of people say cyber attack. It's on the list because Iran has some of the best hackers, but it's not number one on my list. Number one on my list is the following. The jugular of global economy called the Strait of Hormuz. And here's what it is. Right here. Okay, you see right here between Iran and, Iraq and, Iran and Saudi? Right here is what's called the Strait of Hormuz. Now, why is this so important? Why is it called the, you know, the jugular of global economy? Here's why. Dozens of oil tankers pass through this daily, carrying upwards of 84 million gallons of oil. Dozens a day, each carrying 84 million gallons of oil. 20% of world supply, global economy flow, 20% of the flow of global supply goes through right here. 20%, one out of five, is right here, straight of hormones, okay? 76% of the crude oil that moved through the choke point went to Asian market. Let me say this again, 76%, keep this in mind. Remember how I said China has oil supply daily of 3.9 million barrels a day? That a day, that's not a lot. They rely on this here. So if something happens here, a lot of the Asian market could take a hit. So they have to be very careful. If Iran really wanted to get ugly, they would do it right here and they would hurt the world economy with oil. Now let me continue. Cyber attack was one of them. More proxy wars, more propagandas. Another possibility of a 9-11 that could take place. But I don't think that's the worst case. Let me continue what I think could take place. Here's U.S.'s weakness. This is where we are weak as a country, where U.S. is weak. Number one. We are so divided, it's unbelievable. It's almost as if the Democrats and the Republicans, the Democrats would be okay for a war to start as long as Trump is out of the office. That, that, that's almost where we are politically. Think about that for a second here. There is such a major division that anything to get Trump out is a priority, not the protection of the states. This is very, very ugly. It's like when parents go at it, hardcore, and it's all about mom getting something from dad, you know, all this stuff that's taking place, and they forget the kids are taking and paying the biggest price. That's what's going on with our politics. So what happens here? You know, he, he should have came and told Congress that they're going to take us all money. If he would have told Congress, Congress would have leaked it. There's no way. He would have left the airport. They would have never had a shot to kill Soleimani. So if the intention was to kill Soleimani, they did the right thing. Okay, if they would have told Congress the way our setup is something would have leaked, that would have happened. He would have left. We would have lost the opportunity of doing that. Next, election is here. 
And during election, Democrats and mainstream media is going to go hardcore like never before. And the more they do, the more data they're giving to who? To Iran. And Iran shows it and says, look at U.S. They're so divided. Look at us. We're so united. Look at them. They're so divided. This is what could be taking place right now because U.S. is weak. So look, my final thoughts here. Here's what I want you to be thinking about. Obviously, when you look at the whole timeline, Soleimani, three reasons, you know, the conditions here between these three nations and then who has retaliation methods of Iran, what U.S.'s weaknesses are. The last thing I want you to be thinking about is the following. Obviously, if we play the game of chess, Iran took out a contractor, which many people may say that's a pawn on a chessboard. Now, obviously, it's a life. It's somebody's family that was lost. But in the game of war, it's a pawn. Iran lost in a game of chessboard. Take the king out. That's Rollah, Khamenei, any of those guys. You took those out. Iran lost their queen. That's General Soleimani. So it's not like it's pawn for pawn or queen for queen. No, no, no. It's a pawn for queen. And Iran doesn't forget this. That's why Iran's foreign minister said Iran is a very patient nation. Well, I mean that uh, Iran is a very patient country. We will take uh, our action after necessary deliberation. But I'm sure that it will be taken at the time of our choosing not the time of the United States choosing. Before they made the attacks, is he talking patient like, hey, we send the 12 missiles? I don't think so. I think the 12 missiles was simply to save face in front of the Iranian people. I don't think it was retaliation. And I think they knew that nobody was gonna get killed. Here's what I think they knew nobody was gonna get killed because the current administration in US is ran by a man who is very proud. Think about it this way. Who in the history of US has had a bigger ego than President Donald Trump? Who? Actually, think about who is more proud of his accomplishments. Who is? Anybody? Can you think of anybody? If you actually think about it, maybe Lyndon Johnson? I don't know. Proud? Maybe Nixon? Who would you put as a proud? Maybe JFK? I don't know. Who do you put as a proud? Like, let me tell you what I've done. Barack Obama, I'm so proud of what I've done, right? Some may say he's at the top. And what happens with people that are very proud of their accomplishments? Whether you put a Brady, Kobe, Jordan, any of these guys that were the best of the best, in their eyes, what, what do you not do to them? You don't publicly humiliate somebody with an ego. And if you do, they are willing to go to measures that maybe others are not willing to go to. And I think Iran knows that. That's why they didn't retaliate, but they just kind of shot the 12 missiles to places that didn't kill anybody. I think they knew that. But I also think the foreign minister says Iran, Iran is a uh, patient nation, which means we got time. We're going to do it on our terms, six months, 12 months, 24 months, post-Trump being gone. Maybe when Jimmy Carter was presidency, Iran had the 52 hostages. When Reagan was getting elected that day, here's your 52 hostages back because Reagan said we're going to retaliate and get those people back. And Iran knew they would retaliate and they don't want to go to war with Reagan. Maybe they don't want to go to war with Trump. But maybe they will go to war with the next president. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a Democratic president that doesn't want to go to war with them. And they'll say, here's an opportunity. We'll retaliate and we'll say, remember 290? Remember what you did to Soleimani? Here's what it is. We have to make up for it and then blame somebody else and let it kind of slide. They're not somebody that's going to forget about this. No way they're going to forget about this. Just listen to what his daughter said and what a lot of the leaders said. They're not going to forget about this. Now, having said that, uh, in U.S., uh, there is one thing that hasn't happened in this entire conflict. Neither U.S. nor Iran has touched the other nation's soil, meaning U.S. hasn't done anything to Iran's soil. Iran hasn't done anything to U.S.'s soil. U.S. has taken out their number one general 
Iran took out a contractor, right? Nothing. So if Iran was to do something to U.S. soil during Trump administration, how far do you think Trump would go? Actually answer the question. You, I'm not answering it for you. Think about it. Talk about it with your peers. Comment below. How far do you think Trump would go? You think there's limits to him? And I think they know that. That he may go places that were as bad as some of the wars in the past. That if you remember Japan, he can go places that maybe others don't want to go to. Because he's got control at the top as a president. This is going to be bad for everybody around the world. And I think both know it. And I don't think neither wants to go to war. I don't think they want to go right now. And I don't think U.S. wants to go right now. Let me tell you why Iran definitely doesn't want to go right now. Because the current conditions in Iran remind me of what happened in 1978. 77, Carter comes, toast to Shah, leaves, revolution begins the next day. 13 months later, Shah is out, exile, leaves, Iran goes to Khomeini, MI6, US CIA, they bring him in. This has already been reported, written about, people knew Khomeini was going to come in and they helped him. And Khomeini becomes, comes to Iran, takes over and then boom, all these other guys show up. If the current regime, Khomeini and, Khomeini and the rest, don't want to see Iran go through another revolution, if they don't figure out a way to become better with U.S. and they keep playing these games, they may lose their people. And if they lose their people and there's a coup, Iranian people is in their blood. They know how to do a coup. If they wanted to do a coup, they could do a coup. This is probably the best time to do a coup if you're Iranian people wanting to see the revolution change and go back to more of a friendly environment where somebody like me can go and vacate, go for a vacation in Iran and other people like back in the days when Elizabeth Taylor was dating Zahedi and you know all these singers and performers, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra would go to Iran and perform. And we could go, it was a beautiful place in the 70s, you know, all these vacation, rich people would go to Iran, great place to go to. There are many people that would like to go back to those days of Kabar Tehran days. But the current regime doesn't want it to go there. And they know it. If they push a little too hard, the Iranian people have a good memory. And they know what to do. And this time around, it might get very ugly. Because if you touch my pocket, as a populist, I can't feed my kids. I can't pay my rent. I'm in shambles with fights because you want to make up the money of your loss with the sanctions of Iran by raising the price of gas with me. I may retaliate to you. And we, the people, historically, has always won. And if that happens, whew. Things could get very, very ugly. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.